two trials, three juries, hundreds of hours of testimony and evidence, a media circus. The headlines told a story of two greedy, spoiled rich kids, but the evidence told a different story. This week's episode is The Menendez Brothers, Part 2. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. We have a very important update from part one. <laughs> the name of the wing restaurant that I was trying to remember in Mesquite is Fat Wings. That's P-H-A-T. Fat Wings. Lots of people already knew what it was. They messaged me saying, are you talking about Fat Wings? So apparently the word is out. It's good stuff. Go check them out and please tell them that I sent you because... If I got a free order of wings out of this, that would make my year. You guys think we do it for the research and the, our interest in true no, crime. No. trying to eat. It's just food. 100%. So far, we've got cake balls and delicious gluten-free cake. So wings. Yeah. Now we need some meat. Yeah, I'm into it. I would be. I need some wings. I may, I'll probably go to Fat Wings this weekend. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Maybe we could go well, together. Gotta, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to try it out. It's so good. It's uh, see what the fuss is about. So good. So, yeah, I would buy. I mean, if you guys, I'm sure you did listen to episode one, but when Eric and Lyle's parents passed away and they got money, they bought a wing restaurant, (laughs) which set us off on a discussion of delicious hot wings. And if you haven't listened to episode one, we highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. It's going to make this episode is going to make a lot more sense if you have all of that knowledge coming into it. It's like, you know, you don't want to go and see Scream 2 if you haven't seen Scream 1. Oh, man. Funny enough, I don't remember Scream 2, but I remember Scream 1. Yeah, well, that's good. You saw the good one. (laughs) Scream 1, the opening sequence with Drew Barrymore, was one of the scariest things I had ever seen at the time. I remember my dad was watching it, and I walked in, and he screamed, get out, get out, get out. Because, well, he knew. To Drew Barrymore? No, to me. Uh, Of your own house? (laughs) Well, no, like out of the living room, because I am a huge baby. Oh, he was watching it, and you walked in. He was watching it alone. He was protecting you. Yeah, he was watching it alone, and he and my mother had to just deal with years of me watching a fraction of a scary scene of an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode and having night terror. And then you're up all night? Yes, my poor parents. I would scream in the night. And yeah, they had to. This is going to bode well for me when we go see La Girona this week in preparation (sighs) for next week's episode. That's right. You guys got a little teaser spoiler spoiler i'm so scared i was i told christy i was so scared of the la llorona trailer that i knocked an empty topo chico bottle over and ran out of the living room like an idiot and then you had to watch the office to go to bed yes sometimes (laughs) i have to watch the office as a palate cleanser after the horrors that we uh, i look forward to having your nails dug into my hand probably two hours straight well and we haven't really done any research yet but apparently i've heard that some people don't like la llorona the film 
because it's culturally insensitive. Oh. So we will compare the film to our original research and make a judgment call. I'm sure you're all waiting for that. Yes, yes. This, <laughs> welcome to our new movie review segment. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, my movie reviews are always like, the Avengers movies are good. The, the art house movie is weird. You said Captain Marvel. You cried 10 times and that it was amazing. If you haven't seen Captain Marvel, I cried 10 times. It was amazing. It was like the Nike Fight Like a Girl commercial was written by Amy Poehler and also Joss Whedon. Oh, and nice. Had a really kick-ass soundtrack, and Brie Larson's really great in it, and it's just very empowering. So I, I would recommend it. it. I spent the day with my nieces, and then saw that movie, and I was like, "I'm going to show this movie to them one day <laughs> when they're older." <laughs> so, Aww. well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And this is our second episode in the Menendez Brothers series that I've been, we're doing. I feel like I've been researching the Menendez Brothers for 30 years. Yes, yeah, It's same, been about same. a month now because we started researching it while we were recording the live shows. I have yes. just ingested I a told lot. Heather before we started recording, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is I wouldn't have a reason really to do the extensive amount of research that we do. And there have been so many cases this one in particular, when it happened, I just believed what the media was telling us. Just like Amanda Knox. Most people did exactly. Or, well, John Bonet, I always thought something was going on there. Yeah. But with this, everyone at the time just assumed they were spoiled rich kids. They killed their parents because they wanted money. That is not the case, in my opinion. No, no. And I, I feel like anyone that really researches this or watches the documentaries that shows the the trial and the testimony and listens to experts and jurors speak would also agree. No, I I mean I agree, so. Well, good. I'm glad that we agree. <laughs> well, let's get into this second part. On March 8, 1990, the LAPD arrested Lyle Menendez. His brother Eric was overseas in Israel playing in a tennis tournament, but immediately flew back when he heard the news and surrendered to authorities three days later. So at this time, their lawyer, quote unquote lawyer, was Chaff, the guy that was the Hillside Strangler attorney. Yes. And he was sort of residually representing them. He wasn't officially their representative. Well, they hadn't officially been arrested. Correct. He screwed the pooch on this one hard because they could have had Eric go to London and London will not extradite a prisoner if the death penalty is available. Mm. So the U.S. would have had to agree. California would have had to agree to take the death penalty off the table. Wow. And then they would have released him. But instead, he's going, get on a plane. Come on back. Yeah, he flew to Miami. <laughs> and, and then he's charged with the death penalty. Then, yeah. <laughs> or charged with murder. Wow. Also, the expression screw the pooch makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> it's really upsetting. <laughs> what does that even mean? That's a great question. I only I say it because of, of Michael Scott. No, it's a fun expression. Which but I shouldn't. Is I it shouldn't, talking about um, an actual dog or is a pooch a slang word uh, for something ha. else? Okay, is we there, have the internet, so we're about to get an answer. Originally used by U.S. naval aviators to mean to crash one's plane into the water. Interesting. Yeah, it dates back to NASA. So a pooch was, oh, and then a picture of a Weimaraner just came up. Pooch must have been a slang term for some sort of aircraft then. Maybe, yeah. Huh. Well, the more you know. Well, for the next three years, the case was repeatedly held up over the question of doctor-patient confidentiality. The prosecution wanted Dr. Ozil's taped therapy sessions with the brothers to be admitted as evidence, 
The defense argued this violated the brothers' rights. Eventually, a judge ruled that when Lyle had threatened to kill Ozeal, he gave up he and his brother's right to confidentiality and ruled the tapes admissible. Well, because you can argue if a attorney tells you to go and talk to a therapist, that that actually is then attorney-client privilege notes because the therapy is done in conjunction with your attorney-client relationship, but it was shown that... The boys were already seeing, I'm going to also, just a side note, I'm going to try to cognizantly call them the brothers because I feel like the boys really infantilizes them. Yes, well, them. and that was the defense strategy throughout the trial. Yeah, they're adults. They're the 18 boys. and 21. They're very much So adults. they were going to talk to Roseal on their own accord, and it wasn't at the behest of their attorney. So that privilege didn't count. Right. And then also there were tapes, uh, quotes from the attorney saying, wow, we could really use some of this in the defense. Damn. So... Yet again. Well, the defense appealed this decision, and while it was initially granted, the California State Supreme Court overturned the decision, and Ozeal's tape-recorded notes were allowed into evidence. However, the actual taped confessions were not admissible. So why would that be? I would assume it would be because of the hearsay rule, which if you're in law school, bless your heart, because (laughs) hearsay is probably one of the hardest things that you'll learn. It's this is me from memory, and I'm not looking at anything. It's when She's you're staring at the ceiling. When you're trying to to uh, admit out of court statements for the truth of the matter asserted. So it's not just it. It would be saying they confessed because they really did it, and here's the truth. And unless there's an exception under hearsay, you can't admit external evidence like that. You can't. It would be because no one knows if it's true. Or correct. Not. Yeah. It would be. Yeah. I would object on hearsay grounds. Uh, At the same time, why would you say you did it, though, if you didn't? That's a great question. I mean, for any number of reasons, they later say Dr. Ozeal did a lot of stuff to impress a lady. Yeah, that is very true. Well, in December 1992, Eric and Lyle Menendez were charged in Los Angeles County Superior Court with two counts of murder while lying in wait, which is the act of hiding and waiting for an individual with the intent to kill that person or inflict serious bodily harm, in one count of conspiracy to commit murder. You always want to overcharge. That way, in case something goes wrong with the murder, you at least have the conspiracy charge going. Interesting. So why wouldn't they have been charged with two conspiracy, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder? I can go back and check, but it's similar to the Kaufman County DA where they only charged him with the wife, Cynthia's murder. Uh-huh. Because if things go wrong, you can go back and charge him for the other one. Okay, that so you makes get sense. two bites, two bites of, of the apple, which is a lawyer phrase. I read it many times God. during this, and I've heard you say it, and then it clicked. Oh, this must be a lawyer thing. Yep, it's two bites of the apple. Well, the state sought the death penalty against both brothers. If you kill somebody in California, like many states, you can be charged with either murder or manslaughter. Murder is defined as the unlawful killing of another human being with malice aforethought. Malice aforethought can also be like momentary. Where you, in the moment, just want to kill someone? That's where it gets really confusing. So the question is, like, if you're struggling with someone and then you choke them out and kill them, that's probably would be voluntary manslaughter because it's sort of heat of passion. Or it could be second-degree murder. But, the but problem, if you get into an argument and then you walk in two the kitchen, hours later you decide to go in the kitchen and shoot him? Or if you get in an argument and that you know you go, you know what, screw you, man, and you walk in the kitchen and get a knife and turn around and come back and stab him, you just premeditated it. You thought so about the, what you were the doing. the question there would be how much time denotes a moment 
Correct. The, the aforethought. And it gets, yeah, it gets down into it. Basically, when there's a dead body at the hands of another, it's homicide, and then you either have first-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary, or involuntary. So it's we'll get into It's never just oopsie-daisy. Correct. That's this, not a charge. Yes. <laughs> okay. The old oopsie defense. <laughs> well, first-degree means you killed someone intentionally and with premeditation during the commission of a felony. Or using a weapon of mass destruction or explosive device. This is all under California law, by the way. Because each state has different definitions. Oh, interesting. Because Texas has capital murder and it's a lot yeah, longer. Yeah, we went over those also yeah. in the DA yeah. episode. So, so, and during the commission of a felony could even be as simple as you are robbing a bank and someone gets shot. Right. That's first degree. Or you're kidnapping someone and they have a heart attack. Even oh, mailing a letter. Yeah. Isn't Because that that's in the post office. Isn't that a felony thing? Yeah. Second-degree murder is defined as all other murders that are not within the circumstances just listed. Manslaughter, on the other hand, is categorized in two ways, involuntary and voluntary. Involuntary manslaughter applies in situations where the defendant didn't want to kill anyone, but took a life through criminally negligent or reckless behavior, for instance, as a result of driving drunk. Voluntary manslaughter usually means the defendant did not have the intent to kill and simply killed in the heat of passion and without thinking. This is the, the classic case they always use in uh, – the example they use in law school is somebody gets home and their spouse is in bed with another yeah. person and then they just – I just freaked out and yeah. they just choked them. Yes. It's so interesting that it matters. Yeah, <laughs> Interesting. Well, I mean at the end of the day you killed someone. Who gives a shit if you walked in and it just happened or you thought about it for a month – you still murdered someone. I think that the idea is that, well, you know. Because it's kind of victim blaming. It's like, well, you wouldn't have been put in this situation if you hadn't been sleeping with someone else. Your husband didn't, yeah. wouldn't have seen it and he wouldn't have done it. So we're not going to give him as much of a sentence as we would if he'd been planning this for a while. Well, I, that, you're getting to really interesting questions. And fuck it. Let's just start talking about it now that I wanted to talk about this episode. Anyway, I was talking with someone else about, you know, you hear celebrities that you love commit heinous acts. Right. We were specifically talking about Louis C.K., who I used to sure. love a lot. Yep. So, and then so you say I. like, OK, Louis C.K. did these really heinous things. He took vulnerable women who couldn't speak out for fear that their careers would be ruined, their reputations would be ruined versus people were getting mad at Joe Biden for coming up behind someone and putting his arms around him and inappropriately touching him. So the question was, should all things be punished the same way? And I said, listen, you have somebody that runs a stop sign. And you have somebody that goes and waits like Eric, what's his name, from the DA of murders, and waits and hunts somebody and kills them in their house. Mm -hmm. That's two different things. They're both crimes. You broke the law in both cases. You bro you sure. know, Or you run a stop sign and you hit a kid and you accidentally killed a kid. You've killed a person, too. I Shouldn't you go to jail, too? You killed somebody and then he killed somebody. So we I have do agree that those are different circumstances. So we, have a we live in a society where you grade... The mental intent, that's a big part of proving a case in the criminal justice system, is the mens rea and then the actus reus. And the mens rea is the mental state someone had at the time. Right. And the courts really do want to know, did you intend to do this? Did you intentionally go? Did you plan it? Because we, Which is why it's different if you run a stop sign and accidentally hit and kill a kid. You had no intention to yeah. do that. It just accidentally happened. But what if you were texting and drunk at the time, right? So then it's so like... that adds so another layer You're culpable. You're, you're worse than the lady who... Just just sneezed and didn't see the kid. Right. 
And then the person that was like, I'm going to run someone down I'm today. I'm intentionally going to hit is, this kid and I'm kill gonna, them. Or I'm going to drive into this crowd. That you. So we have these grades of punishment because the harm that's caused is different. The mental state that's caused is different. And we do want to treat different types of criminal behavior differently. We do want to do it fairly and say everybody, which our justice system currently doesn't really do a great job right. of, which Especially is an understatement. When it comes to race. Yeah, I'll say it's an understatement of the century. But you want to say, okay, well, this person was intentionally trafficking bricks of cocaine and killing people while he did it, and this guy had a little bit of weed on him. You don't want to say, well, three strikes, you know, you're going to jail. Sure, sure, so that's sure. why I think we have a lot of problems with mandatory sentencing because you want to have a jury be able to look at the evidence and say, this person was super sinister, super terrible. They lied in wait. They waited. They bought the guns. They knew what they were going to do versus this person came home and and found his neighbor molesting his kid and, right. and choked the neighbor to death. Yeah. Like you want to say, yeah, you have to you can't kill a person, buddy. You got to go away for seven to 10 years. But we get why you did it. Hmm. It is. It's a I totally understand and agree with that. It still is hard to kind of wrap your brain around. And I, that's what law school does is take your brain and punches it, mashes it down. <laughs> it charges you hundreds of thousands of dollars. It charges you hundreds of thousands of dollars to think like this. But I think we live in a really reactionary society where, you know, you see and we have always, I mean, at least since the advent of the media, especially mass media like this case, where you see these brothers and they're really rich boys and they spent $50,000 on their tennis instructor and they wear Rolexes. It's this gut reaction of like, oh, screw those guys. Yeah. They did it. Put them away. And I think the importance of the justice system, what does Angela say on the office, when they're like, who should be the judge, judges and juries of our society? And Angela's like, judges and juries. <laughs> like It's important that we have this nuance of, for, I mean, not to jerk myself off, but, you know, a show like this where I think we go, all right, the media said X. What, is, what really happened? Let's break down what really happened and see if that was right before having a gut reaction to say, yeah, yeah I already know already. Yeah. I, th- I think the Menendez brothers are shitheads and I don't care and I don't want to listen. Don't listen to the show. But I never want anyone to think we're apologists for anybody who is, does or doesn't do these crimes. But I think it's always important to look at the nuance, which, frankly, most people don't do anymore. <laughs> they just go. <laughs> no. Um, and it's yeah. because the you want to fire me- off a comment. On and Facebook. the media doesn't present all those sides. No, they no. pick the most sensationalist, bombastic. Yeah headline they can get which in this case is greedy rich kids blow their parents heads off yeah and they run with that what and can then, we make a, a lifetime movie about exactly and yeah. then no other the molestation and what sexual abuse the truth is boring yeah well it is yeah and i mean that's what the media thinks i think the truth is the best part yeah and the and the the most upsetting part of this case which is that these kids were being raped by their father for years just got was just brushed under the rug and not even really dealt with. Yeah, they became punchlines. They became sketches on SNL. And I sent Christy three sketches. I sent her the SNL sketch. None of them are funny. It was seven minutes long, <laughs> and it's seven minutes of not laughing. I felt like Jerry Seinfeld, where the Dennis converts to Judaism for the jokes, and he's like, "Are you offended as a Jewish man?" No, I'm offended as a comedian. I was like, "I am not offended on behalf of the Menendez brothers. I'm offended as a comedian that this is bad. Sketch. It's bad, and the in living color one." Not great. I didn't watch that one. Uh, it's problematic in a lot of ways. I and think, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm offended, but I do think it's problematic to, because you set a precedent. If you're going to make fun of two kids that have murdered their parents that were raped by their father, do we really need to do that? Aren't there other things we could be writing jokes about? Yeah, I'm always, my question when we make jokes on the show or anything, or when I, of course, you know, 
just talk shit in my everyday life. You, I always want to say who's the punchline, and I, it should yeah. never be a marginalized person. It should never be a person. It should never be the victim. The victim, yeah, stuff like that. So, and in this case, they were heinous murderers. They were also victims of child abuse. Absolutely. And I don't think that you have to separate those two things and say if one is true, the other is they not are, true. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Correct. They both are true facts. Sometimes shitty people are the victims of shitty things. Yep. And it a doesn't lot of times. excuse what they did, but it might serve a little bit to explain it. Yeah. And it might be why you don't get the death penalty. You're welcome for that 20-minute rant about criminal justice. I think it's great. I, I mean, we hear a lot how people appreciate all the legal knowledge because this isn't something you're going to get just watching the news. Yeah, not usually. You're going to have um, to do a lot of research, but we're allowing you to just listen to a podcast for an hour and a half. Do whatever it is you're doing. Do, you know, go on a walk, clean your dishes, whatever. Go do to sleep whatever. at night. Someone said they went to sleep and they heard their shout out and it jolted them away. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry we woke you up. That's hilarious. So, yeah. So we're talking about voluntary manslaughter, involuntary. We said involuntary manslaughter is reckless, negligent, reckless behavior that results in a death. Yes. And then voluntary. Voluntary means like that we the said. defendant did not have the intent to kill and simply killed in the heat of passion. In California, imperfect self-defense which is where the defendant commits the homicide through an honest but unreasonable belief that deadly force is required to protect his life is also categorized as voluntary manslaughter. And that's important because self-defense is an absolute defense to murder. Sure. So imperfect. And that would be where you would have a someone's coming at you with a gun. Honest. You're an immediate danger. Yes. Honest, reasonable belief that you were in danger. This is an honest but unreasonable belief where you think you're in danger, but nobody's pointing a gun in your face. Correct. And at the time, you genuinely fear it. And, you know, you think they have a knife or a gun and it turns out it's a comb or something. Right. And that or a cell phone. You know, <laughs> I was thinking of the Dick Van Dyke episode where he thought that guy was robbing him, but it turns out it was a comb. But that's a much more serious <laughs> well, and relevant reference. All of the young black men that have been gunned down by, by the, the police. police, which is too. I mean, honestly, so many, so many, and they should be charged. Absolutely, <laughs> that's a different episode. Yeah. Well, Leslie Abramson, the defense counsel for Eric Menendez wanted desperately to prove that her client committed voluntary manslaughter in an honest but unreasonable fear for his life. A defendant who kills with this genuine but unreasonable fear can be found guilty of no more than manslaughter. Though a reasonable person doesn't need to view the peril as imminent, the defendant must make some showing that he actually believed the peril to be imminent. The couple of things that she really tried to prove at this trial was you always look at everything through the lens of a reasonable person and that's sort of just, you know, your average Joe on the street, not like, well, this highly trained FBI profiler would know that someone walking right. that way was actually an old lady and not a crazy mafioso. So that's not a reasonable person. It's just an average person sees somebody coming towards them and they're whatever in the night and they have a thing over their head and it turns out it was a baguette. Well, he thought it was a... <laughs> I would love if someone came to me in the night with a baguette. I mean, think, I am always hungry. It. But they think it's a baseball bat and, you know, they stab him or whatever. So that's a, that's the reasonable person part that, yeah, you know, if it's dark and there's that shape, you think sure. that it's, a, you know, a bat. But then the other thing is imminent. The peril, the, the issue here is peril. The danger that you're afraid of has to be right now. Right. Not like, man, I really, I could, I could hear somebody's footsteps like way down the hallway. It's like you have to see them and they're coming right at right. you. What is that on South Park? They're coming right for us. It has to be 
right there, imminent, about to happen. Not like someone's in your house and they say, I'm like, what does he say on The Princess Bride? Good night, Wesley. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. (laughs) Doesn't count. It has to be, I'll most likely kill you in the next three seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Abramson's defense strategy was to put the American Dream family on trial. She painted a picture of an abusive, controlling, and ruthless father and a depressed and unloving mother with a pill and alcohol problem. She argued that years of abuse had made the boys hyper-paranoid and that in the days leading up to the murders, they were convinced their parents were planning to kill them. And there's the, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. It has to really be, I think that's sort of that where they're her, planning to kill them. Well, she's saying... with and immediately. Yes, she's saying that the events leading up to the actual murder culminated in moments before the murder they thought they were going to be yeah and, oh, and we'll go through the whole trial i think yeah. that is where her her defense sort of fell apart was the imminent issue on august 14th 1993 the defense made their opening statement eric and lyle were being tried simultaneously but each had their own juries and defense teams leslie abramson was the lead defense attorney for eric and jill lansing was heading up the defense team for lyle both brothers were pleading not guilty so here is my question. Go on. How can they plead not guilty when there's no question? And even in her opening statement, Leslie says, there's no question of who killed Jose and Kitty Menendez. The question is why, basically. And that's yeah. what we're going to focus on. So are they pleading not guilty to first degree murder? The charges that they were actually charged with? Okay. So if they've well, been so- charged with manslaughter, then they probably would have just pleaded no contest. So they were charged with first degree murder. And there's funny because people always say, oh, well, how did this person plead innocent? You don't plead innocent. If you plead guilty, you don't get to go to trial. Right. They'll have to jail. Well, and sometimes they'll have a trial on the punishment only. So you'll get a jury in and have proof. Like a sentencing trial? Yeah. This person deserves the death penalty or not or whatever. Or they can't come to it. Say, I'll plead guilty, but we can't really come to a consensus on the plea for the, you know, the amount of years to spend in jail. So we'll take that part to trial. But the brothers were not pleading innocent. What you do is you say, I plead not guilty to the charges because it's the state's burden to prove that these things happened. Now, what Leslie Abramson did is not the same as a plea because she's not the defendant. But she, from a trial strategy point, did what I would call suck the wind out of the prosecution sales because she gets up there and tells you basically are trying to get the jury on your side. And you look at the jury and you say, these idiots are going to spend all this time trying to prove this murder to you. I'll tell you, they did it. Yeah. And you know what? It's You're about to hate what you're about to hear. And also, just fair warning for everyone that's about to listen, the evidence that comes out in this trial is heinous. It is very disturbing and upsetting. But I think she did it from a strategy standpoint to say, to take the wind out of their sails and to tell them, yes, they did it and here's why. Because her, she was hammering so, so, so hard on the imperfect self-defense. Yeah. She wanted to show there was all this abuse, so then they had this unreasonable fear for their lives or whatever. So it was total strategy. She's a bulldog, man. She's, Watching her in the trial, yeah. she did not give a fuck. Frequently, she would object, and he would overrule her, and she'd be like, <coughs> And then at one point, <laughs> the judge says, every time you get overruled, you keep shaking your head, and if you do it again, I'm going to find you in contempt of court. And she goes, well, it looks like I'm about to be found in contempt of court then because your rulings are extremely biased. And you know why she said that? For the jury. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah it's and a show. she did not get held in contempt of court. No, of course. It's a well, total I, I don't think she was. I think she 100% believed in her clients and was like super, super zealous. But you go back to this question of like, you're prerogative as a lawyer is to zealously represent your client but you're also an officer of the court and you should respect the court proceedings so there's you have this dual responsibility but really at the end of the day you have the utmost duty to your client so i guess if getting thrown in jail or you know getting a contempt charge i mean imagine how that looks to a jury they're like oh they're like their lawyer is willing to get thrown in jail because she believes that much in them and I mean, also, that speaks volumes. you look at the judge and you go, oh, that judge is unfair. He threw their lawyer in jail. Yeah, yeah. What a monster. Yeah. Yeah, she knew what it's, she was doing. It's theatrics. She knew what she was she doing. She did. She did. Over the course of 20 weeks, there were 101 witnesses, 405 exhibits, and 85 days of testimony. The closing argument of Abramson alone was nearly three days long. What a this poor jury. So exhausting. <laughs> Throughout the trial, the defense presented multiple witnesses who claimed repeatedly that Kitty and Jose abused the brothers, including two of their cousins that testified that the brothers had told them about the sexual abuse years earlier. Diane Vandermolen, the same cousin that the brothers had tied up and engaged in inappropriate sexual conduct with when they were teens, took the stand and said that in 1976, when he was eight years old, Lyle confided in her that his father was sexually abusing him. Yeah, this is the whole crux of the defense is what the media called the abuse excuse. Yeah. And I think that's unfair. It's It rhymes. So I'm sure everybody loved it. <laughs> yeah, if if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yeah. We got that going on. Into, well, this, this trial is happening two years before OJ's trial. Yeah. Ironically, was it Lyle or Eric was in the cell next to OJ at the L.A. County Jail? I believe it was Lyle, which is weird because they talked to each other through the cells. Yeah, and Lyle said... No, I'm sorry, it was Eric. Yeah, it was and Eric. Eric said, he's guilty. <laughs> he's like, he's that guy. He's guilty. like, as a person who's killed people, that guy has killed people. Also, in the documentary, Eric tells all the Menendez murders, which is of... It is tough. Uh, there's a lot of heinous stuff, like we said in there. But he said when he was on his way to the L.A. County Jail when he got arrested that the cops said, I'm worried you're not going to make it to trial. This You're about to get thrown to the wolves. Or like the jail's Because bad. the jail was so bad. He said as soon as the lights went down, these giant rats would come out and just take over the whole jail. You'd hear people being raped in cells next door, just crying. He said three days after he got there, the guy a few cells down hung himself. It was just the worst of the worst. This was not a great time for Los Angeles. No, it wasn't. Uh, historically the, the speaking. The 90s were a rough time for L.A. For L.A. I mean, yeah, they had a lot of problems in their criminal justice system there. Yes. Lyle had told Diane... He was too afraid to sleep in his own bed because he and his father had been touching one another down there. When Diane told Kitty, Kitty told Diane the boy was making up stories. Then she forced Lyle to go back to bed. Yes, yeah, is just hours of testimony from several family members who said if Lyle was in his bedroom and Jose was in there, no one was allowed to go down there. There was a lot of just a lot of weird rules in the house. Of, Diane lived with them for a year. Yeah. And her bedroom was down kind of in the basement and there were two single beds down there. And he came, would come down there and say, can I sleep down here? Because I'm scared my dad's going to come into my room. Yeah. But she said... When she told Kitty and Kitty said, he's lying, don't worry about it. To her, Kitty and Jose were king and queen and you did not question anything about them. Either so them. it didn't even occur to her to go tell someone else or mm-hmm. question what she was saying because 
you just didn't do that in that house. Mm-hmm. In September, Lyle took the stand and testified that he had been sexually abused by both of his parents. He claimed Jose molested him from the time he was six to eight years old and that his mother Kitty had insisted on bathing him well into his teenage years and forced him to sleep in her bed and fondle her. It is really upsetting testimony that was, as we said earlier, turned into hilarious yeah. sketches on Saturday Night Live. And I used the term hilarious loosely. It is, like I said, they were not funny. It's basically Rob Schneider. Oh, yeah. Deuce Bigelow. Male gigolo. <laughs> and John Malkovich. And John Malkovich sitting on the stand being like. <laughs> and it's horrifying when you go back and watch the actual footage, which mm-hmm. was broadcast live on court TV yes. every day. Mm-hmm. And when you this go back was and watch, a tr- the trial of the century. It's human suffering yeah. on parade. Oh, and it does not seem put upon. Yeah. They seem very genuine in their just not only recalling what happened and what they've been through, but they tried for when they went to trial, they were 18 and 21, mm-hmm. that amount of their lives to keep this family secret hidden. And now everyone in the world knows their dirty little secret. That's humiliating and yeah. embarrassing. And I mean, I just can't even imagine having to sit up there and be that raw and vulnerable about, about something so awful with cameras happening and everyone just making fun of you. And then, yeah, you say, meanwhile, John Malkovich pulls a sweater on and is <laughs> yeah. going, meh, yeah. on TV. Yeah, it's nuts. During his testimony, Lyle said, I had dismissed what had happened to me as something that just happened to little boys. And said that he and his brother didn't go to the police because they didn't think anyone would believe them. And because their father was so rich and powerful. And he had sort of shown that he was above the police earlier when they got arrested, you know, or, sure. you know, as they were teenagers. When they were robbing their neighbor's houses and yeah. he just took care of it. Absolutely. Lyle being sexually abused by his parents wasn't the only shocking news he delivered on the stand. Weeping, Kyle admitted that when his brother Eric was six years old, Lyle took him out to the woods and sexually assaulted him with a toothbrush. Jose had been abusing Lyle in the same way, with toothbrushes and other objects. Psychologists said what Lyle had done to Eric was learned behavior, and he was simply mimicking his father's actions. So he would have been eight years old when Eric was six. Yeah. Yeah. So they're children. They don't even really know what they're doing is wrong. Well, and they also just think, oh, this is what everybody's parents are doing. Well, because Jose would say... This is a special bond. I mean, like, anyone, like sold, anybody, said, groom, any molester and pedophile grooming, this is a special thing we do because we love each other. This is normal. All families do this. He said this is what soldiers would do with each other. Roman <sighs> soldiers would do this. Well, I mean, he might not be wrong, but that doesn't make it right. Yeah, no. Eric also testified and said he, too, had been sexually abused by their father from the time he was six until he was 18. And that he'd also been molested by their mother. Yeah, pretty much it didn't. It hadn't stopped by the time the murders happened. No, that's why the murders happened. He was so excited to go to college and get yeah. away. In the 2017 documentary, Eric Tells All, The Menendez Murders, Eric claimed that a chain of events leading up to he and his brother murdering their parents actually started a week before they killed them. Which is a lot of stuff that Leslie Abramson didn't want him to say in court because that sounds like premeditation. Right. Eric had recently graduated from Beverly Hills High and had been accepted into UCLA. He was thrilled at the thought of moving out of his parents' mansion and finally being free of all of the abuse. However, Jose had other plans, and according to Eric, a week before Eric was supposed to leave, Jose told him that he would continue to live at home while attending classes. 
This news completely destroyed Eric and left him feeling empty and suicidal. Did we go over in the last episode that Jose paid a large sum of money to UCLA to get Eric in? And then we, well, he paid a large sum of money to get Lyle into Princeton and then yeah. Lyle got flunked out. Flunked out because he plagiarized. Yeah, Jose also spent a large amount. He made a large donation to get Eric into UCLA. And then freshmen were required to live on campus. And Jose made a large donation to a second donation to pay for the dorm that Eric would not live in. And said, kind of said, hey, I'm going to pay for this, but he's he's staying at He'll home. He'll be staying at home. Yeah. God. Eric went to his room and began packing a bag to go stay at a friend's place for a few days. According to Eric, Kitty barged in, told him he wasn't going anywhere, grabbed his clothes from the bag, and threw them on the floor. Shortly after, Jose came in and began yelling and shoving Eric. Without thinking, Eric shoved his father back and ran down the stairs and out of the house. This was portrayed in a lot of the made-for-TV movies. It was a big dramatic scene. Two days later, the incident with Kitty ripping Lyle's toupee off his head occurred, which led to a tearful discussion between the brothers in which Eric said he confessed to Lyle that their father was still molesting him. While Lyle was initially angry with Eric for letting it continue, he quickly realized his anger was misdirected and planned to confront their father about the abuse. Apparently, as maybe a preteen, Lyle had said something to Jose, like, you're not doing anything to Eric, are you? And Jose's like, no, of course not, of course not. Yeah. And so Lyle just thought, oh, okay, well, everything's okay. Yeah. and Not that it's his responsibility as a child right? in a house like that. And but. when Eric told Lyle it's still going on, just out of disbelief and rage, he asked him, why are you letting this happen? Do you like it? Do you like what dad's doing? And then, you know, of course, Eric breaks down and Lyle realized, oh, I'm out of my mind for thinking this. Yeah. This is, he's this a is crazy. Yeah, yeah, he's a victim. The next evening, Jose returned home from a business trip and Lyle told his father he knew what he was doing to Eric and that it had to stop. Lyle said his father replied, you listen to me. What I do with my son is none of your business. I warn you, don't throw your life away. Just stay out of it. Lyle said he called his dad a fucking sick person and warned him that if he didn't stop sexually abusing his brother, that he would tell everyone, including their relatives and the police. Unfazed, Jose replied, We all make choices in our life. Eric made his. You made yours. Lyle went on to testify. I thought we were in danger. I felt he had no choice. He would kill us. He'd get rid of us some way because I was going to ruin him. So here's where we start seeing... The imperfect, what is it called? Imperfect self-defense. Yes. So, there's so we're leading up to they feel like any any at any time their parents can kill them. Basically. Yeah, and I think it's in the Eric Tells All documentary that one of the journalists that was in the courtroom for both trials said, I genuinely believed them when they were testifying about the abuse. He said, you can see it in their faces, their way that they move, how they cry. He said, at certain points when they talked about the, con- the confrontation and the threats, He's like, something just seemed off and they would cry, but it wasn't the same. Like it was more put on. We're probably not disagreeing that there was a lot of abuse, but perhaps the situation leading up to the murder was fabricated. Yeah, I think Leslie Abramson took advantage of a situation that she saw because she saw they actually definitely murdered their parents. Right. First of all, they confessed, but, you know, evidence and stuff. They were definitely molested by their parents. How do I marry these two concepts and do the best I can for my client? Right. And I think that was she was trying to to fit the the 
the facts into that imperfect self-defense description when I think what it, what you had was two victims of years and years of abuse and they just had enough. They just fucking got sick of and it And they're one 21 day. and 18 and it's they they just should have left home. I mean, it like I said, you can hold these two truths that yes, they were absolutely abused by their parents and no, you're not allowed to murder somebody. Right. You know. And we'll get into while that is a very logical explanation what the defense why what they thought about that yeah so she i think they're they're saying these the testimony of lyle saying well he said he was gonna we knew we had no choice that he was gonna kill us definitely i was maybe a little fabricated yeah the next day eric and lyle drove to san diego for the day to get away from the mounting tension at home while they were there they stopped at a sporting goods store eric claims they told the salesperson they wanted to purchase guns for self-defense and the salesperson suggested they buy shotguns, which they did. Here you go. That is a hell of a self-defense gun. That's what Dave Chappelle has a new bit about that where he said he saw someone walking across his lawn with a shotgun and he just ran to Kmart and said, I need a gun. And they go, yeah, okay, here you go. <laughs> real easy. Yeah. The day before the murder, the entire family went on what was supposed to be a deep sea fishing trip. Eric said the entire drive to the marina, he felt an overwhelming sense of dread and that he was terrified of being out on the open water with his father. Another bit of testimony that I think was probably implanted a little bit by Leslie Abramson. Well, they really did go on this No, no, no. Trip. I know. There's, they interviewed the boat captain. And <laughs> Who is? He's got a lot to say. He is one of my favorite characters. Yeah, he's fantastic. But I think the whole, oh, I just was afraid to be on the ocean with my dad. Right, I think right. it's, she's building a case for it's imperfect self-defense. Yes. Yeah. In the documentary... The captain of the boat said the vibe from the family was weird the entire day, with Jose and Kitty sitting by themselves in the cabin and Eric and Lyle sitting out on the bow of the boat, cold and wet, but unwilling to go inside the cabin to get towels. I love that the boat captain goes, that was a weird family, and I thought, something horrible is going to happen. <laughs> and I was like, did you? Really? <laughs> you predicted this all? And I'm sure there was a captain weird vibe. Psychic. Because just the, the few days before... <laughs> It all came out that he's raping his son still. She yanked the toupee off his head. They, they probably also don't probably, like each other. They're probably always weird. Yeah. Yes. The cousin Diane said in all the years she'd known them, she couldn't think of them being affectionate with one another. Yeah. The, the, Jose and Kitty, they didn't hug. They didn't hold hands. If a picture was being taken or something to portray the image that they were the perfect American family, then they would put on a show for the cameras. But just... In everyday life, they kind of just went their own way and ignored each they other. They were like roommates. Yeah, they they did not have a happy marriage. Yeah, so I'm sure were... that regardless of what's going on, it is going to be a weird vibe because they all hate each other. Pretty much. Eric said his mother was angry that there were more people on the boat than she expected and that he didn't understand why this was a problem. And while it was supposed to be a fishing expedition... No one made any attempt to fish. All right, it just sounds like a big weird boat ride. <laughs> the captain said... They tried to get all the fishing stuff out and just no one was interested. And he was like, why are we all out here? He's this like, is, hey, man, it's your dime. I'll keep this driving. This is weird. Eric believes his parents were planning on killing them on the boat that day. But because there were unexpected passengers, they were unable to go through with it. Yet again. This raises a lot of questions. Because they knew there was going to be a captain, which means... They either would have had to have also killed the captain or staged some crazy like thing accident. where they fell overboard and drowned. The, the brothers did. So 
I there, just, were, there were a lot of moving pieces to pull that off. Yeah, I just, again, I think the testimony about all the abuse is mostly, if not all, true. And then some of this fear of imminent death She's is... She's beefing it up. It's getting a little much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later that night, while Eric was alone in his room, Jose bounded up the stairs and started pounding on the door. Eric said he sat on his bed with a loaded shotgun pointed at his door. Determined to never let his father come in his room again, he thought this was it. Eventually, the pounding stopped. The next day, August 20th, 1989, would be the day of the murder. Eric said he woke up that Sunday morning feeling like everything was about to explode. He left the house and went to a church in Santa Monica that he would often visit when looking for peace. When he returned home later that night, it was after dark and Lyle was waiting for him upset that he had been gone so long. Lyle informed Eric that their mother was saying they were not allowed to go out that evening. Paranoid and terrified, the brothers once again believed their parents were planning on killing them that night. My question to them is they're 21 and 18 years old. Just fucking go. They have keys to their car. Just leave. That's. But again, yes, we are rational people that were not sexually and emotionally and physically abused by our parents for the majority of our life. True, and told by Jose... If you ever leave, if you ever tell anybody, I will kill you, yes. I have my ways. So I, mean, I think was... even though they're 18 and 21, and that was what was so hard for so many people to understand, that they're grown men. And that's why Abramson was called them the boys repeatedly. And she would rub their back of their heads. Yes, and, and, and uh, dress them like the it was prosecution Easter. said that she even got in the habit of calling them the boys yeah. because it was said so much, she started doing it. Yeah. So it just, and like you said, you're accidentally doing it. So she tried to portray them as boys, but yeah, they were... They were grown men, but they didn't think like grown men because they had been so abused and victimized. Yeah, and I think that it is once you're abused that you do get your brain can get emotionally stunted at that age. Dr. Drew says when a lot of times if you hear a grown woman that's speaking in a very childlike voice, that's just her voice, Mm -hmm. that it may be nine times out of ten, if not ten out of ten, if he treats her. He says, what age were you molested? And it's always eight years old, seven years old. And that's where she's kind of stopped maturing. And she still sounds like an eight and seven year old. Wow. Yep. So now every time I hear that. Dr. Drew's out making people paranoid. Some people have high pitched voices. I got a low voice. I mean, I also have a low voice. can't help how we talk. But it is there is a direct correlation between. If I could help how I talk, I wouldn't sound like a King of the Hill character. <laughs> you don't sound like a, a King little of bit the I Hill do. character. A little bit I do. But but there is a direct correlation between emotional stunting, um, yes, and maturity. And yeah. When something traumatic has happened in your life, you and they become do emotionally stunted. You can sort of compare it to like a kidnapping situation, or even like having some slight version of PTSD or something, where you just you think the world will end if you leave. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm not... Uh, we don't want a victim blame. Again, I think you can hold two truths in your hand. One, that they were absolutely victims of abuse. And two, that they should not have murdered their parents and they didn't have a legal right no. or a moral justification for doing what they did. No. Allegedly fearing for their lives, the boys tried to leave the house. But Kitty stopped them, saying, You're not going anywhere. When they asked her why, she curtly replied, Because I said so. An angry Jose soon appeared and instructed Kitty to shut up and told Eric to go to his room and that he would be up in a minute. Lyle exploded, yelling, You're not going to touch my brother! 
Jose charged at him and said, I do what I want with my family. So this is quite a scene because they're trying to leave. Their mom is telling an 18 and 21 year old, you're not going anywhere because I said so. I mean, she even talks to them like they're little kids, six and eight still. Yeah. And that's how they feel. They well, feel the, like little boys. I think also when you become so financially dependent on your parents, they I mean, could they leave? What are you going to do? Go work at a, a restaurant or something? I mean, yeah, try it, I guess. Go stay with family. They had a lot of family that in Florida. Yeah. Were, and that to this day is on their side. Super supportive. Yeah. Kitty screamed at Lyle that he ruined the family. And she and Jose went into the den and closed the doors. Convinced they were working out the final plans to kill him and his brother, Lyle ran upstairs to Eric and told him it was about to happen. Their parents were going to kill them. Believing they had to kill or be killed, Eric and Lyle grabbed their loaded Mossberg shotguns, descended the stairs, burst through the living room door, and blindly started firing. So that's this is, I think, where Leslie Abramson's defense falls apart. Even the scene that she's painting, and the they close the doors, and Eric and Lyle say, "Oh, we believed that they were in there, were in there to loading their us. own guns, yes, or finalizing their plans." That is an honest but unreasonable belief. But I think that the peril was not imminent. Because it wasn't like... She didn't prove that the peril was imminent. Well, I don't think you can because they're behind closed doors. It's mm. not like they were behind closed doors and they hear him going, all right, honey, grab the gun or whatever. Right. They don't hear anything. You can't... It was speculation. Yeah. So there's... Yeah. That's my not a criminal lawyer legal theory. On the stand, Eric testified that he thought his father was standing at the time of the shooting, but said also... As soon as I burst through the doors, as soon as I saw them, I just immediately started firing. I didn't stop and look around. I just started firing. Things were shattering. The noise was phenomenal. It was just chaos. I couldn't tell who was firing at who. I, I was just firing my gun. Before the massacre was over, Eric and Lyle left the house and went to the car where Lyle reloaded. They returned to the house where Lyle fired one more shot. The final shot, which was apparently fired when Kitty was still alive, was administered while the muzzle of the shotgun was in contact with her left cheek. Jose also had a contact wound to his head. I also think this is where your imperfect self-defense theory falls apart because she was alive. He went back to his car. That's premeditation to reload, mm -hmm. come back out, and with the intent to, I mean, he took the life of another with malice aforethought. I mean, that whole time he's walking to his car, reloading the gun. He knows what he's about to do. He knows what he's about to do. So I think your imperfect self-defense also falls apart here where you have an alive person on the ground. As wounded as she was, and sure, maybe she would have she not survived. She probably would have died, yeah. Yeah, but she, you have an alive person on the ground, and he goes ahead and does it. And not just does it. To her face. He does it in the most personal and I'm going to make her unrecognizable and just yeah. destroy her. There's a lot of, I think, psychological issues here with – and I think when you listen to him talk and actually from Dr. Ozeal's notes – and some other doctors that talked with them that Eric was super vulnerable and super suggestible. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Ozeal's like, Lyle is a textbook sociopath. Yeah, he, he has was no the feelings. mastermind behind it he all. He had no feelings. He he was he maybe shut his feelings off. You know, he you have this kind of like mixture of what's kind of making him into a shitty person. And yeah, it's his parents and maybe it's a little bit of genetics or whatever. But you they said at the end of the day that it was Lyle really was the one that was a kind of a cold-blooded killer yeah. that he with full knowledge eric maybe just started firing was freaking out lyle with full knowledge walked back to his car reloaded came back in and shot his mother in the face and that's just 
so gruesome. Yeah, for sure. The prosecution was adamant that regardless of how badly Kitty and Jose may have treated their children, in no way was that an excuse for the brothers' actions, and that the real motive for Eric and Lyle murdering their parents was simple greed. The day after the murders, Eric and Lyle spoke with Randolph Wright, an attorney and family friend, about probating Jose's will. Lyle told Wright that he thought Jose might have changed his will and that the new will might be on the family computer. The other possible location of a new will was a family safe. Lyle retrieved the safe, and it was brought to Wright's home, where it was kept in a spare bedroom. Eric spent two nights in the bedroom with the safe guarding it, and when it was opened, Lyle allowed no one but Eric to be present. Yeah, so he was st- Eric was staying over with the Wright, their attorney, and Lyle came over to open the safe and basically said, everybody get out. Me and, me and Eric need to do this alone for family reasons. <sighs> well, yeah. That's a little suspicious. After opening the safe in private, Lyle told family and friends that he and Eric had found nothing in the safe. Interesting. With nothing in the safe and nothing on the computer, the brothers stood to inherit millions. And like we learned in the first episode, the reason there's nothing on the computer is that they had a computer expert erase erase everything. Everything. So these things do not bode well for the defense. Again, I don't think that is why they killed their parents. But perhaps they thought, well, all the shit they put us through, we're getting something out of this. Actually, that's I think that's what my end of the day theory is, is that they were fed up with being molested. And they thought, you know what? When we get older, dad and mom are at retirement age. Mom's about on her last leg. She was like doing really badly, was taking a lot of pills and drinking a lot. And they thought, well, at least when they die, we'll make like a bunch of money. And then the parents start throwing around, y'all are disinherited and we're not going to leave you any money. You know, we're writing a new will. You're cut out. And that may have contributed to them snapping and being like, well, there's nothing even to live for. Like, yeah. Why are we even yeah. doing this? I think this? it was a culmination of several things. Yeah. Specifically and especially the abuse that they had been suffering for so long. Yeah. But I think some of the other things were kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And not that, you know, money at all is ever okay for somebody to do heinous things to a child. But I think in their rational mind, as irrational as it was, to say, you know, at least, you know, someday I'll inherit all this money and I can get away from here. Yeah. And then it's like, you can't, A, you can't get away. And B, you're not getting any money. You're kind of backed into a corner. So like you said, they perhaps thought we really do not have anything to live for yeah what's the point the one like glimmer of hope we had in this whole thing just got taken away yeah leslie abramson brought mental health experts like dr ann burgess who testified that abused children often suffer from ptsd and ptsd like symptoms which make them susceptible to fear and anxiety and could lead to unreasonable fear for their lives the prosecution once again hammered home that at the time Jose and Kitty were simply sitting on the sofa watching television with their backs turned to the door. At no point, reasonably or unreasonably, could Eric and Lyle have feared for their lives. The prosecution argued they were adults, 18 and 21 at the time, fully capable of leaving home if they wanted. The defense argued that years of torment and abuse from their parents prevented the brothers from being able to think and act like rational adults and instilled a fear in them that altered their perception of what harm seemed imminent. Yeah, and that's that, That's where it gets into it of what if they were thinking rationally, irrationally. They weren't pleading guilty by reason of insanity because no. at no point did they not know what they were doing. Right. They, they fully, willfully did what they did. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, like I said, the imminent issue is where it really kind of fell apart. In August, Dr. Ozeal took the stand 
and said that Eric and Lyle had confessed to him that they had been planning to kill their father for weeks. They also told Ozeal that when planning, that they knew they were going to have to also kill their mother in order to leave no witnesses. And they also kind of said, she can't really live without dad. Well, not she for was an em- financially not, dependent on him. Yeah, yeah, not for like an emotional reason. They just said if Dad's gone, she'll just die. She'll probably kill herself. Or yeah, they they just were kind of. And again, I don't think Eric really was kind of laissez faire about it, but Lyle kind of was. He just said, "Yeah, we knew we had to kill her too." Yeah. Eric says in the documentary that he, one of the hardest things was seeing how he was being portrayed in the media as this spoiled rich kid that was smug and didn't care. There's a very famous scene of him walking into the courtroom with Abramson where he looks like he he is laughing and he has a very smug look on his face and he's got one hand in his pocket and he just looks too casual to be there and in the documentary he says he had just been sobbing his eyes out and throwing up from anxiety and he was walking to the courtroom and Leslie made a joke to him to try and kind of calm him him down and he said it was just a nervous reaction to laugh and smile which that is a a reaction a lot of people have when they yeah. get overstimulated in, in those ways is they have inappropriate reactions. And that one thing just got played on a loop on every news station. Like, look at him smiling uh, yeah, and, and laughing. And he, he said the reality of it, the irony was that behind the scenes, he was a fucking wreck. Yeah. He was suicidal. He was on a ton of Xanax and antidepressants. He that's was crying caused, all the time. Yeah, and that's what caused the confession is that he went to Dr. Ozeal yeah. before he confessed and said, I'm going to take my own life. Yeah, there's he also couldn't that, take the guilt. The scene, and I think it's in that documentary where they're being interviewed by Barbara Walters, and he's like, I don't see what the deal is. I'm just a normal kid. Yeah. And she's like, you killed your parents. And he said, well, I mean, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he kind of has to concede that, yeah, yeah. he did that. But she's like, Eric, what? You killed your parents. <laughs> You're not normal. No. But to him... Well, and and also he's really not a normal kid because the things that happened to him aren't yeah. normal either. But there's that disconnect. Ozeal also testified that the brothers had told him they thought they had committed the, quote, perfect crime. They had also confided to him that they had gone back outside to reload their shotguns while their mother tried to crawl away. The defense claimed that Ozeal had never felt threatened by his patients and only claimed that in an attempt to prove that he was ethically and legally just in breaking doctor-patient confidentiality. Eric also claimed that Ozeal told him that he wouldn't go to the police if they, quote, went into business together. And I I don't think this is too far-fetched considering how unethical this man was. I think was. it's easy to say Jerome Ozeal con- committed what has been documented as unethical behavior. I mean, you know, to the point that he's not a doctor anymore, but he, it wouldn't be shocking to learn that. No. You know, I mean, that's a testimony from Eric. I'm not saying he did or didn't do it. That's what Eric testified to. But I think his whole relationship with Judalon Smith mm-hmm. and letting her listen to the tapes and, you know, he's like, I didn't, I didn't let her listen to tapes. I'm like, she didn't go dig out your psychology tapes to listen to him. Right. And he, him calling her a bunch of times and having this unhealthy obsession with this patient and ha- he had written her prescriptions, but said that he really, he said, oh, I'm not her doctor. And they said, well, why do we have prescriptions that you wrote her? And why do we have this letter that we wrote? That the you whole wrote reason her? she went to the police was because he dumped her. Yeah. And she knew that he was in jeopardy of being disbarred because or not, or losing, his or losing his license because of taping these sessions illegally, essentially. And, yeah. and so she <laughs> said, 
Oh, woman yeah, buddy. Scorned. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, buddy. She yeah. straight up went to the cops and then this all happened. Yeah. So he I think that's not unreasonable. But I also think, again, it's I think you can rationally hold these two truths that Eric and Lyle did tell Dr. Ozeal they were going to kill him. And also Dr. Ozeal committed a bunch of unethical things. Sure. So I don't think one is necessarily, you know, negates the other. The State Board of Psychology ended up revoking Ozil's license. <gasps> what? Over the unauthorized taping of the brothers' conversations, as well as other unethical behavior involving some of his other patients. As cameras were allowed in the courtroom, the Menendez brothers were the subject of public ridicule. Footage of their tearful testimony was mocked by pundits, reporters, and even Saturday Night Live and the Dana Carvey Show. I was just watching Too Funny to Fail, and they have the Bob Ross as the court TV correspondent where he's painting the Menendez Menendez brothers. brothers, And he's like, we need a happy tree. They're about to go to jail for the rest of their lives. They need a friend. Let's paint a little tree friend for them. And it's maybe the only, like, not even funny, but like... But it's reasonably tolerable. Okay, Menendez sketch. Yeah, but everybody wanted to talk about it. It was the hot thing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. The brothers were particularly mocked for their pastel Ralph Lauren sweaters worn over their crisp button-down shirts. Many commentators pointed out how Leslie Abramson treated Eric less like a client convicted of murder and more like a sad little boy or even her own son. She frequently cradled his head on her shoulder and put her arm around him to comfort and console him. Yeah, there's shots of them like where she's got her hand on the back of his head or she's patting him Mm -hmm. gently. And I think she genuinely probably did feel bad for him, but it looked it, it served the idea that he's just a boy. Larry King said he went out to dinner with her with i forget who he was dating at the time but it was a celebrity and his girlfriend hated the menendez brothers and thought that they had just killed for greed and blah 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 and they were at dinner and abramson said i love those boys so much i would adopt them right now wow yeah so i think she genuinely i think she really genuinely cared but it it had a good effect on the jury i think Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, on the media mm -hmm. Abramson was likewise ridiculed in the media for being a tough-as-nails, take-no-prisoners defense counsel. She frequently got into verbal sparring matches with the judge or would gladly stand out on the courthouse steps and talk to the media, answering questions and hurling insults at the prosecution and the judge. Yeah, she would straight up go there and be like, well, we're being railroaded in there by an unfair system that's just here to completely take out citizens for, you know, doing something that they had to do. I mean, she just would get on the courthouse steps and just like Muhammad Ali and just get in the microphone and just, you know, pump she up. She lived for it. Oh, she lived for it. I mean, she There's pumped up. There's one funny clip where she's walking into the courthouse and she's just flipping the double bird at the cameras and she's like, is this what you want? Because this is what you're getting today. Damn. She didn't give a a shit. She was also criticized for concocting a defense strategy that some legal experts in the media called the abuse excuse. We said it rhymes, so it It must be right. After closing arguments were presented, the juries adjourned and deliberated for five days. The judge had given the jurors an instruction on imperfect self-defense. However, neither jury was able to agree on a degree of homicide landing all over the board with votes for first-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and involuntary manslaughter. In the end, a majority decision could not be reached, and the trial resulted in two hung juries. All 20 weeks, and it's hung juries. It's crazy. After the first trial, Abramson asked the public to donate to the Eric Menendez Legal Fund to help cover the cost of his second trial. 
The defense fees for the first trial totaled $1.495 million, and of the $14.5 million estate Eric and Lyle had inherited, only $700,000 in cash remained after having to pay taxes and upkeep on the family's Beverly Hills and Calabasas properties. I have not looked into it, but I do wonder, as far as the inheritance goes, well, I guess it wouldn't have really mattered. I'll say Texas has this, what's called the Slayer Statute, that if you killed someone, you, you can't be the beneficiary mm. on anything if you're the one that caused their death. But I guess they hadn't been convicted, so they oh, yeah. took the money, spent it up, and then I guess it would be up to the any other beneficiaries to argue that they owed him back. In August 1995, the second trial began. The judge from the first trial, Judge Stanley Weisberg, was also the judge for the second trial. In pretrial hearings, he granted a motion that severely limited what the defense was allowed to present as far as evidence of abuse, as the prosecution had deemed it irrelevant to the case. The cases were also tried before a single jury. So they're saying... It's irrelevant. It does not matter what these kids went through. We're only here to talk about the fact that they killed their parents. It doesn't matter what led up to that. Yeah, or if you want to let any of this in, you have to lay a foundation and show us why it's relevant first. We're not just going to whole scale let this in. And it was sort of said at the time that Gil Garcetti was real pissed about – he was the head DA at the time and was real pissed that they lost. Oh, it was a – consider just a legal shit show that they didn't manage to get a conviction on that yeah and everyone was like oh well you know and he basically said we're not losing this time yeah we we will not lose the prosecution successfully argued that some so-called source evidence which is evidence that would have explained why the brothers might have had a fear of their parents was cumulative or evidence that only serves to prove what had already been proven in court or lacking in foundation, and therefore should not be admissible. Yeah, so if you want to introduce something, you need to put somebody on the stand who can explain to testify and say, oh, well, you know, I robbed the bank because somebody was behind me with a gun. And then you go, and now, Your Honor, I would like to present Exhibit A, which is video footage from the robbery that shows a person standing behind my client. So, you know, you you lay a foundation for why it's relevant. Okay. So a lot of it before they were going to say, we're going to call these witnesses. Well, what are these witnesses going to testify to abuse? Abuse of who? What's going on? We don't know what you're talking about. Well, then you get Eric up there to say, I was abused by my parents. I was super scared for my life. And then you can say, Your Honor, we're now going to call witnesses that will testify to the very abuse my client talked about. Well, you can have two or four witnesses but when, that are all testifying about different things. But if you have... 80 witnesses that are all testifying about the same thing, that's cumulative. You get to the point where you're like, okay, the jury already heard it. You're like, we get it. We get it. So it doesn't strengthen the case by showing 80 people knew about this or or saying this really did happen. It could strengthen the case, but uh, apparently under California evidentiary rules, a judge can strike something for being cumulative. Interesting. For judicial expediency or public policy reasons or I don't know. Any number of reasons. The witnesses that were not allowed to testify included family and friends who would have testified to specific instances of abuse by Kitty and Jose, and experts who would have explained what effect the abuse might have had on Lyle and Eric. Additionally, the judge banned cameras from the courtroom this time, a major blow to courtroom transparency, but according to Judge Scheinberg, necessary to prevent the trial from becoming a media circus. With cameras banned, the prosecution took another tactic— Rather than focus on refuting the defense's claims of abuse, though they were severely limited, the prosecution's focus in the second trial 
was the absolute heinousness of the crime. They had enormous crime scene photos showing the damage the brothers had inflicted on their parents. With each claim by the defense, the prosecution questioned whether the way they were gunned down in their home was an appropriate response. That was pretty much a giant poster board, which... Of the crime scene photos. Then you have this, another evidentiary objection you can do is that so, that you can allege that either side is putting something up just to horrify the jury or yeah. to get a reaction. And I 100% guarantee you that Leslie Abramson objected to that. I don't, you know, I don't have the trial transcript or anything. And I'm sure Judge Weisberg said overruled because there was a little bit of Judge DA collusion going on. Yeah. yeah. Because they said, we're not going to lose again. No. And he also did not like her. Nope. Lyle opted not to testify in the second trial. This became problematic when his attorney tried introducing evidence of the abuse. In order to introduce evidence properly, an attorney must lay a foundation as to why such evidence is relevant. With no testimony from Lyle about his parents' abuse and his unreasonable fear as a result, there was no relevant reason to include any further evidence on that theory. And even worse, the prosecutor said, he wants you to believe he was scared of his parents. He didn't even get up and testify. <clears throat> Not allowed to do that. Why didn't he testify? I don't know. I couldn't find why unless he was just over it. Maybe he's just like, I've been, I don't, Who gives I a can't shit? Send fucking, me to jail. Yeah, yeah, I can't deal with this yeah. anymore. There's something to be said for that. I mean. I mean, I wouldn't blame him if yeah. that's why. Or he was so, you know, embarrassed and ridiculed and pulled through the mud the first time. Yeah. Well, Eric did testify, and over the course of seven days, went into great detail about the alleged abuse. In addition, Brian Anderson, a cousin of Lyle and Eric, testified about severe physical abuse that the brothers suffered at the hands of Jose. Diane Vandermolen, who had also testified in the first trial, again took the stand and recounted incidents of physical and verbal abuse by both Jose and Kitty. Andy Kano, also a cousin, testified that Eric confided to him that Jose was molesting him. Kano also testified that Eric always had bruises on his body. So there was some evidence of abuse. It yeah. just wasn't as much as, as much it as, was in the first one. Yeah. Several witnesses testified that when Jose was alone with one of his sons in the bedroom, no one was allowed to go near the bedroom. Dr. William Vickery, a new psychologist that had been treating Eric in jail, testified that Eric suffered from an anxiety disorder that could affect his mental state. In addition, Dr. Wilson testified that Eric suffered from battered person syndrome, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, so he was still getting help for his mental health issues sure. once he was in jail. Given all of this testimony directly suggesting various forms of abuse as to both Eric and Lyle, the trial court excluded some of the other proffered testimony as cumulative. Yeah, once I mean, it's like the judge would say, yeah, we get it, we get it. Yeah, we don't want to be here for 10 days hearing the same, the same story, story from a different person. Dr. Vickery was poised to testify at trial. He had collected several volumes of notes from his sessions with Eric, which he turned over to Leslie Abramson. Upon examination, Leslie told him that he had to cut out several parts particularly any parts that referenced what sounded like premeditation. For instance, several weeks before the killing, Eric decided that he, quote, had to kill them. Yeah, these were not helpful to the defense. No. None of these notes. Which is why Abramson wanted Dr. Vickery to cut out these statements. He refused, citing medical ethics. She warned him that if he didn't, he would not be allowed to testify. Worried for his patient, Dr. Vickery agreed. At trial, 
Abramson called him as a witness and had him read from his notes. Yeah, this is a pretty famous part of the second trial that it was not televised. Again, there's only courtroom sketches and then reports of what happened. What if it had been? Dude. Oh, it would be a fly there's, on the there wall. Is there, there's photos of it. And yeah, it's pretty I would have loved to see her try and explain this away. Oh, yeah. Well, unfortunately for Abramson, an unabridged copy of Dr. Vickery's notes had been given to the prosecution already. As he was cross-examined, the prosecution pointed to the portions of the notes that had been removed. Under oath, Dr. Vickery had no choice but to admit that Abramson had forced him to remove those portions of his notes. The courtroom erupted, and the judge called everyone back to order. Yeah, the... A uh, journalist that was in the audience at the time said it was a madhouse that when I mean, that is a bombshell that gets dropped. Huge. That's something that's only on Law and Order in the movies. Oh, seriously. When the prosecutor goes, OK, Dr. Abram- or Dr. Vickery, why is this missing? And he's like, Miss Abramson told me to yeah, cut it out. That's like, like <gasps> record scratch. Yes. Gasp. And then cut to her just oh, to see her facial expression. Yeah. Because, you know, you're. Up shit creek at that point. You got to just own up to it. Yep. The jury was ushered out, and Abramson was forced to own up to what she had done. There were calls by legal experts at the time for a full ethics investigation and whispers of disbarment. However, she hired lawyer Gerald L. Chaliff, who defended the Hillside Strangler and the Menendez brothers in connection with their Calabasas robberies. Apology, I think I called him Dr. Chaff, or uh, Attorney Chaff earlier. <laughs> Chaliff, Chaff. Well. well, he represented her and did very well. And in 1999, the State Bar of California cleared her of any wrongdoing due to lack of evidence of misconduct. Yeah, I think it was How kind of... How can that be? I think it's his, the Dr. Vickery's word against hers. So did she claim, I didn't tell him to take those out? I mean, I'm probably, if I was, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I mean, you got to, first of all, don't do it. Second of all, own up to it. I actually didn't look super far, hard into this. It was 99, so I'm pretty sure probably none of this stuff would be digitized to see copies of it. But they have to prove, just like anybody else, that she did it. And if there's no evidence and you have a good enough defense attorney oh, that's hammering, go. hammering, hammering and saying, really, show exactly where my client did it. And they can't show it, then they may. It's just he said, she said. Pretty much. Well, on March 20th, 1996, without the mound of evidence of abuse that was presented in the first trial, the jury found both Lyle and Eric guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. The jury also found that Lyle and Eric committed multiple murders while lying in wait, a fact that increases their sentencing. The brothers were sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And the judge did not give the juries the imperfect self-defense instruction because he said... There is not sufficient evidence to offer this to the jury. There's not sufficient evidence that they would have been in uh, felt an imminent threat of bodily so, harm. Voluntary manslaughter wasn't even on the table. Not for the judge. Yeah, it he, was just he did first not. degree murder or bust, pretty much. And you have these crime scene photos, and you have a defense attorney going, "Yeah, these guys shot their parents in the face." So, yeah. I mean, if your jury instruction says, "Do you believe beyond a reasonable doubt these people shot their parents in the face?" You'd be like, "Yeah." I mean, that you had to. Interesting, though, that at this point, that these jurors had to have seen all of this in the media. Yeah, that's familiar a- with the first trial. There's no way that you're going to find someone 
unless they've been living out of the country for two years that doesn't know what's happened. So you already, even though it's not being presented in court, they know a lot of the stuff. And I was thinking that too, is, you know, a lot of times when you have like a smaller town or something, but something happens and everybody's heard about it, you just move to a different county or something. In this case, this was worldwide. It don't matter where you go. They could have come, they could have gone to Omaha, Nebraska, and people still would have known exactly who they were. Shout out if you're listening from Omaha. (laughs) But yeah, it doesn't matter. Great stakes. I want to go to Nebraska. Is that? Nope, that's South Dakota. Never mind. Where? I was going to say Mount Rushmore. Is. Oh, I don't know. But I'm South terrible Dakota. with geography. Uh, I'm a Nebraska. Big, big fat idiot when it comes to geography. <laughs> Home of Nebraska Furniture Mart, where I got all my furniture. Oh, but yeah, it's also here now. But you know where they know about the Menendez Brothers? Nebraska Furniture Mart. <laughs> In the Mart. You got to go around and ask people. I went to the Nebraska Furniture Mart. I have a photo. I'll put it on uh, Instagram. And they have this refrigerator. I've that seen Basically has, I texted it to you at the time, basically has a small television in it. So you can see everything that's in your fridge and save electricity. Yes. And, and you can it. also play apps. And so they had Spotify. So I put the show on the app and I had it playing on the refrigerator and I walked Nice. <laughs> I hope it was a really, really good one. Oh, yeah. Where we said finger bang a lot. <laughs> So every episode. One of our new iTunes reviews, whoever I wrote this, thank you, said, I have never heard two women say finger bang so much. <laughs> 12 out of 10 would recommend. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we didn't offend you. <laughs> no, no. I was like, 12 out of 10. Hell yeah. We'll take it. Well, Eric was sent to Folsom State Prison and later transferred to Pleasant Valley State Prison. And Lyle was sent to Mule Creek State Prison. If I had to choose, I would pick Pleasant Valley over Mule sounds, Creek. Sounds nicer. Folsom is where Johnny, Johnny Cash. Cash was. That's right. Yeah, it he seems was... like a real rough place. I have that record on vinyl. It's great. That's it's fantastic. And bef- the Barbara Walters interview that we mentioned earlier happened, I believe, five days before they were sentenced. And in that interview, they're both in jail together at the time. Oh, yeah. And Eric says, if we... One of the greatest tragedies of this will be if we don't get sent to the same prison. It's well, like I've endured a lot and there's a lot I can put up with, but not being able to see my brother. He's He said, if we don't get sent to the same prison, I probably will never see my brother again. I mean, he's not wrong. And And then they, I think that was probably a fate worse than death for them. Well, the general public opinion was that this jury finally got it right. Suspicion of political collusion between Judge Weisberg and the DA's office arose. Fearing another O.J. Simpson or Rodney King situation, some believe the two had worked together to ensure a guilty verdict. Yeah, like you said, it was not a good time for uh, the LA LAPD, County. what was going on there, and they did not, because by this time, the Simpson trial had recently happened too. Yep. And, and the Rodney King one. There was also that trial going on about the crazy ass mother and her son that had were charged with like 52 counts of child abuse we'll have to do an episode on them someone someone requested it yeah they ran a daycare yes it's horrifying yeah i don't honestly i don't know if i could do an episode on it because it is just really it's very upsetting but they were also found innocent yeah and then all the cops for the rodney king get off so it was a really volatile tensions were very high in la and they did not want another riot on their hands so if they were going to get a guilty verdict they were going to do whatever they had to get that do guilty what it verdict. takes well the california court of appeal affirmed the conviction and the california supreme court denied review lyle filed a habeas petition with the california supreme court which was denied both defendants filed federal habeas petitions which were also denied 
Finally, the brothers appealed the denial of their federal habeas petitions to the Federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. A habeas petition is what you file when there's someone imprisoned and you want there to be a hearing on why they're imprisoned. And And is that something that a lawyer would immediately file if their client goes to jail? It's just textbook. I'll start no, no, the no. There, so there's like a process that goes through it. So exactly what you just described, the the wonderful world of criminal appeals is exactly the order you say. You have a trial court. The jury comes to determination. You appeal it to the state appellate court. They, you lose there. You appeal it to the state Supreme Court. You lose there. You file a habeas petition. If you lose there, you file a federal habeas petition. Then if you lose there, you appeal the federal habeas petition. And if you lose there, you can try to go to the Supreme Court. But that would have to be the habeas petitions that go to the Supreme Court are like really weird new areas and questions of law that this just didn't have. In 2005, Judge Alex Kaczynski famous for his harsh opinions and tough stances on crime, wrote the opinion for the brother's appeal. In it, although he upheld their conviction, he had to apply the AEDPA, or the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. This law effectively gutted the federal writ of habeas corpus, which allows the federal court to order the release of someone wrongfully imprisoned. The federal writ of habeas is responsible for exonerating many wrongfully convicted defendants. The AEDPA increased the standards under which a defendant must prove a trial court erred. It is estimated as a result the reversal rates of state courts in death penalty cases has been reduced by about 40%. That's really horrifying considering (laughs) all of the – I'm listening to the – Pruno Raman and A Side of Hope, which is the stories of uh, wrongfully convicted folks. And there's a really high There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Of whether it's misidentifying through eyewitnesses. I just texted Mm -hmm. you earlier today that photo lineups are terrible. Do not use those. Uh, And regular lineups are terrible. Our memories are not a good... We're not good about... They're just not reliable. I couldn't remember Marissa Tomei's name the other day. I shouldn't be allowed to point to someone and have them sent to jail. I'll be watching TV. It'll go to commercial, and I won't remember what I was just watching. That's what I think. So, I mean, like, I do not have a good memory. No, well, and nobody does. The internet has rotted our brains, and they've done studies where they send five people into a room. They'll have something crazy happen, and afterwards they'll take them and separate them and say, okay, what happened? The lady came in and smashed the glass. Mm-hmm. What was she wearing? A blue shirt. I swear, to, I swear on my family, on my my house on my mother's life that she was wearing a blue shirt and they go back and play the tape and she's wearing a pink shirt yeah and it's like it, your brain fills in the blanks a mm-hmm. lot whenever you can't fully remember you see what you want to also see. You, every time you remember you're only remembering the last time you remembered it so memories are all a lie anyway it is it's we talk about that a lot how but yeah, crazy so that is. the aedpa was passed and it really did it cut off a lot of federal writs of habeas at the knee i mean it was it was pretty bad As their appeal was filed after this 1996 law, Lyle and Eric were subject to this higher standard, which requires an appellant to prove that the state court's decision was contrary to what the Supreme Court has determined is, quote, clearly established federal law, or that the decision was, quote, an unreasonable application of that law. Appeals courts are highly deferential to state courts' decisions. Which you want them to be, right? You know, you want to. You don't want a federal government. We have the system that we have where the states sort of govern everyday things and the federal judiciary and the federal government only is governing interstate commerce and things that affects between the states. 
But I think and you do need to have a check on a system, especially one that is depriving citizens of their life or liberty. I think sure. it's important to have a federal check on that. Yeah, we need lots to check. I, I completely get anti-federalism. And I you know, love states' rights, yada, 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 which is also kind of a dog whistle cry to be able to a license to discriminate into, in this case, I think, throw people sort of away with an unfair trial. Yeah. Well, nevertheless, the brothers appealed on five issues related to a violation of their due process rights. One, the admission of a tape-recorded session between the brothers and their therapist. Two, the trial court's decision not to instruct the jury on imperfect self-defense. Three, the exclusion of certain evidence may have violated their due process rights because the trial court required that they first lay a foundation, which as a logical matter could only be done if they testified. Four, the exclusion of certain lay and expert testimony. This also brought up issues of whether their Sixth Amendment right to present a defense was violated. And five, whether Lyle's due process rights were violated when the prosecutor commented on the lack of evidence regarding abuse and the lack of experts, both of which the prosecutor had successfully moved to exclude. Yeah, you can't have, it's, uh, you it's can't a, have your cake and eat it too there. Yeah, pretty much. And it's really rare for Judge Kaczynski to ever come out and talk about cases, but he's actually interviewed in one of the documentaries. Mm -hmm. And he's been quoted as saying there was a clear set of rules for the first trial. And the prosecution basically said, all right, we've learned this imperfect self-defense muddies the water. This evidence confuses people. Hey, judge, we're going to object to all this. And the judge is like sustained mm. and basically and he said it changed the rules dramatically from the first trial to the second trial and even though that happened because of that AEDPA he still had to affirm their wow. conviction god yeah. damn that's yeah. crazy I mean, they basically said it, you have to testify in order for you to get this evidence in that would allow this imperfect self-defense. You cannot force the defendant to testify. You have a constitutional right not right. to take a stand. So, the, I mean, it, it was rigged. It was like a circular logic yeah. of like, well, if you don't testify, you can't have this evidence. If you can't have this evidence, you can't have this jury instruction. And it, it's, it was like one thing led to another, led to another. And they, they there was no way they were going to win. No, they effectively rigged the game. Yeah. Well, in the end, the Ninth Circuit rejected all five contentions and affirmed their conviction. Being locked up did not prevent the brothers from finding love, however. I'm sorry. This is bullshit. I'm a free, good-looking woman. <laughs> and these people have been married you multiple. you got to go to jail to find love. Heather. They've been married several times. Man, and that's a whole, maybe a mini-sode on women, my women mom. that, and I guess men that write to women, but it's for, far more common for women to write to men in prison and form relationships. That's something I just can't wrap my brain around. That's a Mama McKinney request. She has asked for us to do oh, something really? on that. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. But she refuses to subscribe on Patreon, so I guess she won't hear it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Nancy. I go, wouldn't you just give me a dollar? And she goes, no, I birthed you. Yeah, I am that's not what she told me. She goes, I told her, bitch, no, I gave you life. <laughs> so apparently a dollar is way more valuable than life. Yeah, she will give you life, but she will not give you no. a dollar a month. Which sounds, that's, that's <laughs> yep, you nailed it. That's her. That's her. Well, on July 2nd, 1996, the day he was sentenced to life in prison, Lyle married former model Anna Erickson during a telephone conference call from jail. That's so romantic. It's super interesting that they, uh, it's California maritime law allows that. So I guess sailors could get married on the boats. Oh, yeah. interesting. But the okay. judge allowed it. 
Lots of uh, sailor talk. To- well, I guess the other one was screw, pilot talk. Screw the pooch. <laughs> pilot and sailor talk. I've been watching the Avengers movies. <laughs> I restarted The Office. So good. Oh, man. I'm on season one, like episode four. It's just such a perfectly written show. So good. Well, Anna and Eric later divorced after he was caught writing letters to another woman in jail. You can't even not you can't even trust this motherfucker in jail not to cheat on you. I don't to laugh so hard, but man, <laughs> you're like I have finally got him. No pun intended on lockdown. I've got this guy set. No, he's he's She's right. Like, I got the else. one. <laughs> Dick will drag you down, girl. I'm so sorry, Anna. That's and then in 2003, busted. he married that woman. Damn. Rebecca Sneed. So he's currently married to Rebecca Sneed. Damn. In June of 1999, Eric married Tammy Ruth Sackerman, a single mother who had been writing to him since his first trial. In 2005, she wrote, They said we'd never make it. My life with Eric Menendez. Again, not fair that she gets to write a book and I do not. <laughs> you can. I'm telling you. Look. The proof of how you get there is right here. Okay, just we'll get locked up. We'll find you an inmate. <laughs> no, we're going to oh, have okay, you okay. be the woman. Okay, good. I don't want you going away to jail. It's I hard to film a podcast in jail. Although they do have now podcast things yeah. in jail. In fact, I forget what it, which one it is. They advertised it on, uh, I think it's on the same network that does Criminal, that there is a, it's this podcast that's like, from jail and that's awesome. the inmates. Yeah, and it's actually really good. I can't remember the name of it. Next episode, I'll present that. I feel, I believe in full criminal justice reform and finding things for detained individuals to, you know, find ways to recoup the damage they've done to society yeah. and their own souls. And Eric and Lyle both lead meditation groups in their prisons. Eric does a lot of work with the hospice group yeah. as well. So they they said you know, I mean, a lot of people go to prison. You know you're going to be in there for life. You kind of just give up. But they said, we're not going to give up. There's a reason we're here. And we're going to try and do something good with this. Mm-hmm. Well, in the 2005 interview with People Magazine, Eric said, I'm not saying what I did was right or justifiable. I needed to go to prison. But place another child in my life and see what happens. I felt it was either my life or my parents' life. It's as if there was a kerosene all over the floor that a match could light at any time, and my soul was burnt to death. Eric said he spends his time in prison, meditating and building his relationship with God. He also said that while he was too fearful to talk to God during his first year of prison, he did talk to his mother, and that he felt she, quote, still loved me. He went on to say, I would love me if I was her. After this forgiving stage, I was able to acknowledge my mother in my life again. (sighs) You know what? That's probably a coping mechanism. I mean, you should, yeah, you, know, you murder someone. There's a someone. lot of guilt. And he said in that documentary, it's really upsetting to listen to him talk about in the moments after they killed them, waiting to hear the sirens. police sirens come. They never came. They're just sitting on the stairs. Lyle's comforting him. They finally decide, all right, we got to get out of here. They drive up Mulholland Drive. They dump the guns under a bush. They, he said they came up with the alibi on the fly, that they mm-hmm. hadn't planned to, like, go to the movies, that they just said, we can go. They're just driving around. Yeah, and then they didn't even get the tickets because it would have been after the time that it happened. But then they went back, and the police still hadn't shown up. We talked about that in the first episode, and he said it was just silence in there. And that as much as he didn't want to, he had to go back in the room mm-hmm. where the parents were because he was – so already so guilt-ridden and wish nothing more than to go back a few hours and to not have done that 
that all he could do was be in that room with his parents because that's where they that's where wow. they were. And Lyle and he just, of course, was losing it. And Lyle would drag him out and he would run back in because he just couldn't not be in there. So I think he I mean, he says he is comp- very regretful. He thinks every day about how he wish he could go back and not do it. I believe that. Oh, I, I think it was a very spur of the moment thing where you're not even fully thinking through the ramifications of what you're about to do or the repercussions you're just there is kind of that imminent fear where you're just this is how i solve this problem right now and then i kind of my brain hasn't really figured out the rest of it yeah i'll figure it out as it comes and, and then once the reality sets in you just can't deal with it when i think his lyle's behavior of when they are you know confessing in dr Ozil's office of looking at eric and going well we have to kill him now too it kind of and then eric's crying and freaking out about the parents and lyle's dragging him out of the room and trying to be rational he didn't really have an emotional reaction to kind of any of this no he's a sociopath if you look at his mugshot i will post that on the instagram he looks like the lights are on but nobody's home it is wicked yeah he looks very scary Well, there's been some new evidence. On January 18th, 2003, the Menendez brothers' cousin and lifelong supporter, Andy Kano, was prescribed some sleeping medication while on vacation in Costa Rica. Despite being told to avoid large doses, Andy took twice the normal dose and was later found dead in his room. A reporter went to Andy's mom's house to interview her about her son's death. While there, she revealed that Eric and Andy were pen pals and frequently traded letters with one another. In one letter written in December 1988, found by Andy's mom, Eric wrote, It is still happening, but it is worse for me. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. Am I a wimpus? He's just so overweight I can't even stand to look at him. Yeah, this is Bob Rand, who's a lifelong journalist covering the Menendez brothers, and they wrote the book that I read. And he saw this letter, and it's a handwritten letter from Eric Menendez, dated, signed, that it, the letter goes on too and corroborates that he had been telling Andy that he was. And why would abused. you make that up? No. There, there's no reason. So, I mean, I feel like that's just hard proof that this was happening. Eric Menendez hopes that this new evidence will be sufficient to grant him a new trial or appeal, as it is dated and signed evidence that there was abuse going on. But again, would it matter? What does this really help yeah, him? Yeah, I with? mean. Uh, trying to i guess trying to murder that he murdered them that's what he's being tried for i guess he could be retried and have it have that evidence imperfect yeah have imperfect self-defense presented again because who knows if it got presented in the second trial it may have been another hung jury yeah which if that's the case then that's what they deserve because the evidence all the evidence was admitted yeah a recent california law may also present a legal loophole for the case The new law states that defendants found guilty after not being allowed to use physical or sexual abuse as a defense may be allowed to appeal their convictions. I mean, that's spot on for this case. Yeah. Manny Medrano, a criminal defense attorney who covered both Menendez trials, said that while the brothers may be allowed to appeal their convictions, they still have a very long road ahead of them, given all their previous appeals have been denied. I think it would have to be a lot, a substantial amount of evidence Maybe there were more letters or something or a diary, uh, something that was proof, not just different than what testimony. Yeah. Madrona also said that even if the brothers are granted a new trial, the prosecution has a lot of incriminating evidence against them. In an interview with CBS Los Angeles, Madrano said, I covered every trial in the Menendez brothers in Los Angeles. And as objective observer and as a lawyer and as a reporter, I have to tell you, the evidence was overwhelming. 
Well, the last time Eric and Lyle saw one another was September 10th, 1996. They stood on opposite sides of a yard at the L.A. County Jail. Then vans came and took them to two separate prison units. But in February 2018, Lyle was transferred to the R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, where Eric had been since 2013. For the first two months, the brothers were housed in separate units. But on April 4th, 2018, Lyle was transferred to Eric's unit, where the brothers had a tearful reunion. It was the first time they saw or spoke to one another in over 20 years. Yeah, they said that the last day they were on the other side of the yard and the they got put into vans and the vans were driving beside each other. And at a stoplight, one went left and Gosh. one went right. And that was the last time they saw That's the other one. Straight out of a movie right there. Yeah. December 2018, the brothers spent their first Christmas together in 23 years. Lyle said, I think for us, the gift is just being here together. It can be bittersweet, right? Because being together brings back a lot of memories and things from the past. It's like seeing a family member you have so much history with and not all the good. But at the same time, it's just two decades being separated. Every day seeing each other is sort of shocking. So just to see my brother, it's, it's just sort of a shock. So I don't think it'll be any different on Christmas. He also said he didn't want to be in the Christmas pageant. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the prison Christmas There's pageant? There's a prison, yep. He goes, I don't want to be... Is it like they dress up like Christmas trees literally, and gingerbread men? Yeah. He goes, I don't want to dress like a reindeer or anything. I just want to have dinner with my brother. <laughs> well, I mean... They got something to do. Yeah. Bob Rand, who first interviewed the brothers just two months after the murder and has since spent decades researching the case and the family's history, summed it up on the Today Show. This is not a simple story of a pair of greedy rich kids who killed Ozzie and Harriet on a Sunday night in Beverly Hills. These were two highly dysfunctional parents. They raised two highly dysfunctional sons, and everything ended in a terrible tragedy. Eric and Lyle continued to serve their life sentences without the possibility of parole. Whew. So what do we think? Well, my brain is filled with so much Menendez information. I think like we said earlier, and I'll reiterate it again, I think you can simultaneously understand that these were severely, severely abused children young men and adults who mm -hmm. then also committed a unjustifiable heinous crime sure i think morally inside of us we're like yeah if someone molested me for 100 years or you know however long 20 years and i had the opportunity to shoot him in the face i would take it but we don't live in a society that's governed by our morality we're it's lived in a society that's governed by the justice system and it says you can take a life in these sim in these very few instances yeah and this is not one of them it's hard to stomach. It's hard to think about. I hope that we gave listeners a lot more information than if you guys remember this at the time when it was going on than, than you had. Because there's only been one article, really, that's come out that painted them as victims. Yeah. They're, they are never painted as victims. They're painted as just greedy rich brats that blew their parents' heads off because they wanted money. And I think there's a lot more to it. I agree that all of the abuse, I I believe, I do think that a lot of the incidents were fabricated or embellished leading up to the murder oh, they, oh, they by the defense or, to yeah. seem like there was more of a imminent threat. But I'm I wouldn't have been surprised if Jose had killed them. Yeah, I just don't know if it was going to be that night. If he was, if Lyle was threatening to tell the family and the police that he had been sexually abusing Eric, then maybe. Yeah. 
I mean, and he could say, you know what? I'm so mad at you. I could kill you. And that is not an imminent peril that would justify killing them. And throughout their lives since they were kids, he he would get threatened to kill them. Yeah, repeatedly. I mean, all the time. It was a violent household with violent. I mean, Bob Rand just summed it up. Dysfunctional parents, dysfunctional kids. And it's just the saddest possible result. Yeah, it was. It's very sad. There were no one one in this situation. No, I mean, they're they are convicted murderers. They are where they should be. But the question is, you know, should we put people, I mean, they were eligible for the death penalty. And I I messaged you and just said, you know, watching Eric Menendez in jail and seeing the good that he does with the other inmates, it told, I mean, it made me think who better, who's a better candidate for the death penalty than a person who put a muzzle of a shotgun to their parents' face and pulled the trigger, Right. Theoretically, well, I'm very opposed. To I know, but I'm saying if one was, you know, sure, if, sure, sure. You know, hypothetically, if, hypothetically, if you're going to say, well, what's a situation where you think someone deserved it? That's high up there. But you see this man who spent the last 25 years, 24 years in prison, and he is shepherding people who have terminal illnesses. Mm-hmm. He's leading meditation groups. He's having people deal with the anger from their families. And for each of those, it's, you know, what is it, the the crab thing of, like, you throw the crab back in the ocean and there's still 10,000 crabs on the beach. I mean, one by one, he is helping people. Mm-hmm. And then isn't that our p- purpose for being on the planet, right? It's sure. helping each other. And, and if someone has a chance or is interested in getting better and, and seeking redemption, I think you don't say, all right, well, you can go out, get out of jail. Sure, that's fine. But I think you can say, yeah, you can live your life and you can be a teacher in jail or you can be a minister or whatever. And But even... Kitty's sister has said the brother. I don't think they should be in jail. The sister said, "I don't think they should be in jail." The brother's like, "Yeah, they should get the death penalty." It's so it's weird. A very divided family. I imagine that Thanksgiving is they a probably rough one. Don't see each other. <laughs> yeah. but don't. it's interesting that you could have something so tragic happen to your sister and still love your nephew, and you and not only love them but support them and think that they shouldn't be locked up. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, until you've been there, they said in instances of parasite, which mm-hmm. is killing both of your parents, which at the same is time, very, very. They uncommon. said it's like point zero four percent. Killing something. one parent is rare, is rare. Killing both parents is almost never seen. Yeah. So but, you don't really know how a family can yeah, react. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, let us know what you guys think. This was a lot to take in. This is a super long episode. It's like a double episode. Yeah. So you've had three Menendez, and we almost broke it into three. I thought about doing that, but then I thought, we'll just make it a long one. You know what? Enjoy. So thanks for sticking with us. Maybe you had a road trip or something. <laughs> or just uh, you had to go to Wingstop 20 times and in each car <laughs> Back trip. and forth. Back and forth. <laughs> you drove all the way to Mesquite for fat wings. Oh, do it. Yeah. Highly recommend. <laughs> well, many of you have asked if we have a Patreon where you can donate to the show. We do. Our show will always remain free, but if you wish to donate to help offset the cost of making and hosting the show, you can visit patreon.com forward slash sinisterhood. You can get some sweet perks like Patreon-exclusive content, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group, a special shout-out on the show, and a monthly bonus mini-sode. Make sure you join the Facebook Patreon page if you are in that tier, because this Saturday at 2 p.m., Heather and I are going to be doing a live Q&A on Facebook. We have got some fantastic questions. These are really good. I'm excited. uh, There's one in particular. I'm not going to say it now because I don't want to spoil it, that I have been thinking about more than any of the other questions. I love it. And I hope you, I'm going to ask you on the live Q&A which one you think it is, and we'll see if you got it right. All right. I'll guess it. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's a lot of really fun questions so 
hit us up on Patreon if you want to be a part of that. Um, it's the Rules the Airwaves tier. And if you are in that tier and you haven't joined that Facebook group, please do so. The information is on the Patreon page. Most definitely. Also, we are going to have an iTunes review contest, you guys. If we get 500 reviews or more by Memorial Day, which is May 27th, Christy and I will stay at the Adolphus Hotel for one night. This is the and most, one night only. One night only. It is, and we'll record it, and we'll put audio up, and we'll we'll probably do a lot of stories on Instagram. Yeah, we'll do a lot of Instagram stories and, and take video, and we'll then, take video for Patreon stuff. Yeah, and then we'll also just post some stuff, you know, on our Instagram so everybody can see it. So go to uh, iTunes and leave a review. We're currently at 432. So As of yesterday, we're at 432. We may have received a few more since then, but if we hit 500, it's doable. I think so. If we hit 500 by Memorial Day, you will, Christy has been to the adult I have and I had a paranormal experience you heard or saw something I heard and saw something <sighs> I so will scared. talk about it when, when we get 500 views and we stay at the Adolphus Hotel. And for those Just kidding. Nobody are... review anything. Please. I don't want to do this. <laughs> don't review us on iTunes. When, if you're not from Dallas, the Adolphus Hotel is arguably the most haunted hotel in Dallas. There are a lot of sightings. There's can... ghosts in the lobby, ghosts on multiple floors. There's, in the they're all over the place. They're yeah. running the front desks. They're bellhops. If you Google it, there's a million stories. It's basically the Tower of Terror. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we're gonna have a lot of fun. It's basically the hotel from the television show Angel or the which Twilight Zone. Scares me so bad. <laughs> I'm, so I'm not familiar with Angel, but Twilight oh, Zone. Yeah, hotel is so scary. Alrighty, well, the best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen. Tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much. Helps a lot of small podcasts like us get exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Heather, where are you at? Uh, they can find me at Heather vs. The World on Instagram and at MCK vs. The World on Twitter. Christy? I am on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Sinisterhood.